Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you, uh, my name's Craig Foster. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and if you are new and visiting today, you've come into a series. We're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, and we're looking at big chunks. We're looking at the whole of chapter 8 and 9 uh, today, which is uh, the miracle chapters of Matthew. We look at, there are 10 separate miracles uh, in these chapters. But uh, before we begin to look at it, let's, let's pray together. Please join me as we pray. Father God, we thank you for the grace that is awaiting us as we've sung this morning. We thank you for the grace that is poured out upon us uh, through Jesus by your spirit. We pray as we look at this section of uh, miracles that you would help us to understand truth and that you would speak to each of us in the way we need to be spoken to today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are millions and millions of dollars that are spent on election campaigns, particularly coming up with a really key slogan uh, that uh, captures kind of the mood. Here are some famous ones. John F. Kennedy, uh, when his presidential slogan in 1972 was a time for greatness. It's a great year, 1972. Uh, It was a year I was born. Uh, I'm sorry, I just uh, had that reflection. Bill Clinton, in his election Campaign 1992, his was, it's the economy, stupid. Seemed to catch on. Now, I don't know if any of you can remember Donald Trump's 2016. It was, make America great again. Well, in Australian history, one of the most successful political campaigns was back in 1972, was it? It was a good year. This was when Gough Whitlam became Prime Minister. He said... It's time. Okay, a lot of people remember that. And it's a phrase that has become very much part of our vocabulary. We might hear people say, it's time to do this, it's time. I I hear that uh, quite often. And a common theme of most of these successful political campaigns is that they understand the general mood of the nation. They understand the times. And understanding the times is so important in life, isn't it? Uh, If we understand the times, then we can make really good decisions. They can be life-changing. If we get it wrong... It can be really costly. I was thinking about uh, the importance of understanding the times as I remember the the first time I bought some shares, uh, the first and only time, actually. It was about 20 years ago. It was when uh, Telstra and Commonwealth were were listed on the stock exchange. And I thought, I haven't followed it for years, and I thought, oh, I'd just be interested to see what they're worth today. And Telstra, uh, they're pretty much the same. Nothing's changed, so I'm sorry if you bought Telstra shares. But Commonwealth shares, I bought them for around $10. Today they're worth... $84. That is an 800% increase. Uh, Sadly, I didn't understand the times and I got rid of them very quickly. I wasn't patient. Well, I don't want to make any stock market predictions today. Uh, I don't want to make any predictions about when the world is going to end, so you can can relax on that one. But the key question that we want to consider today as we look at Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9 is what time are we in? from God's perspective. In God's great plan of history, where are we? What is God focusing on in 2017? Now, in chapter 8 and 9, we meet the author of the Gospel of Matthew. We meet Matthew himself. Uh, We read about his conversion to Christ. We discover that he was a tax collector. Now, having been an accountant uh, for nearly a decade um, in in a previous life, I've come to realise the Gospel of Matthew is an accountant's dream. Uh, Matthew loves patterns and order and structure and uh, accountants tend to get all excited about these type of things. Um, 
Now, I'm not sure if others here will get as excited uh, as, about, as I do, but uh, you might be a bit, little bit more like the accountant's wife uh, who was having trouble sleeping and she couldn't get to sleep and she finally realised a solution to her, to her problem. And she was lying in her bed trying to get to sleep one night and she, she said to her husband, darling, can you just tell me about your work? And she was soon fast asleep. And my, my wife hasn't actually tried that on me yet, but uh, she may. Well, last week we looked at the Beatitudes and we saw that Matthew likes chiasms. Uh, it's a, a technical word for, for a simple idea that is a sandwich structure, okay, where there's the bread on the top, there's the bread on the, mod- on the bottom, there's some lettuce, tomato, and then right in the middle is the key ingredient, whether it's your smoked turkey or your, or your smoked salmon. Uh, we get to the middle where the key point is. And Matthew does this because he wants to draw our attention to the middle. He wants us to clearly see the meat in the middle, where I believe Matthew, in chapter 8 and 9, he wants us to understand the times. So let's begin with these outer layers, the bread, uh, at the beginning and, and the end. Firstly, we see Jesus dealing with the problem of suffering in our world. We see at the beginning of chapter 8 and at the end of chapter 9 that Jesus interacts with some of the greatest sufferers in Jewish society. He comes down from the mountaintop. He's just given his famous Sermon on the Mount. And he comes down and the first thing God's son, Jesus, does, he doesn't go to the royal palace and meet with royalty. He goes and touches someone who is highly contagious and who is suffering immensely, a leper, with an incurable rotting skin disease. Now, to the Jews in those days, lepers represented death. They were a picture of walking death. Uh, and we read about lepers back in the Old Testament, Leviticus 14. They were unclean. They had to live outside the city, uh, away from the others, because it was a disease that was feared like Ebola or, or like AIDS in those days. Now, following the leper, Jesus then heals a Roman centurion's slave. His slave is paralysed and he's suffering terribly. Now, Roman centurions to the Jews represented the enemy, the enemy of the Jews, Next, he goes and heals Peter, the disciple's mother-in-law, who had a severe fever. Now, severe fevers in those days were often deadly, and it is likely she's dying. And she was considered unclean by Old Testament law. And she was also a woman, and sadly in those days, in Jewish society, women were considered almost second-class citizens. So what Jesus is doing here is he is going to the untouchables of society, He's going to the unclean. He's going to the enemy. And as we see at the end of chapter 9, as we get to the bottom of the slice of bread, we see this same pattern happening. Jesus heals a man who was mute, couldn't speak, and who was demon-possessed. He then heals two blind men, and then he brings a dead girl back to life. And then he heals a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. So all of these people that Jesus heals are unclean by Jewish law. But Jesus reaches out to them and completely heals them, makes them clean. So what we see Jesus here doing at the beginning and the end of Matthew 8 and 9 is healing physical suffering. But it's not just physical suffering that he's healing because much of the suffering that these people would have experienced was isolation. They were cut off from society. They were cut off from God. They were outcasts. They were outsiders, untouchables in their society. And Matthew is showing us that Jesus came to deal with such sufferings and show us that he came also for all people. I was given a real glimpse uh, of the suffering that disease can bring in a society as our family lived in Zimbabwe last year. 
um, there are an estimated 1.6 million orphans in Zimbabwe for a population of about 15 million. That is a lot of orphans. And most of these orphans are the result of people uh, of AIDS and HIV. Uh, We visited a number of orphanages when we were over there uh, and we visited one, the Sandra Jones uh, home, that was started by an Australian lady uh, 30 years ago. An amazing place. Uh, Over these 30 years, she's helped 1,500 orphans who have primarily been sexually abused girls, uh, many of them having AIDS. Uh, and she has looked after them. The, the home currently now has 70 girls in it. But as you see in that picture, there is also a lot of children, and a lot of these children are the result of sexual abuse, and a lot of them have AIDS. Because one in three girls in Zimbabwe are sexually abused by the time they are 18. Now, if Jesus were to visit Zimbabwe today for a few weeks, this is what he would do. He would heal the suffering. People would be healed of AIDS. He would be bringing healing and joy everywhere he went. And people would soon be flocking to him from all over the country. But it's easy for us to say, well, that's all good and well. Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. That's not much good to us now, today. Why doesn't he come now? If he's so loving, why doesn't he come now and heal the AIDS victims and others who are suffering terribly? Why does he seem to stand so far off from our pain? But the people of Zimbabwe would know full well that if the AIDS problem was solved there, it would be like a Band-Aid solution. There is a far deeper and more serious problem in that country than AIDS and HIV, even though the suffering is terrible. So as we get closer to the middle of Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we see Jesus starting to deal with this bigger, deeper problem. We see Jesus... In point two of your outlines, dealing with the problem of evil in our world. Now, although to us suffering in our world is big, it's painful. There is a sense that there is a, it's an outworking of a bigger and deeper problem, and that is the problem of evil. And the story of Jesus healing two demon-possessed men is an example for us of Jesus dealing with this problem of evil. As these two demon-possessed men that we read about before are a picture for us of the destruction and dehumanising work of Satan. Have a look at chapter 8 with me, verse 28. Chapter 8, verse 28. We read, When he, Jesus, arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Now, can you imagine the scene being there? You tried to walk this way in town... These crazy men with their wild hair, probably teeth missing, tattered clothes, screaming, would come out of the graveyards. And these men were so strong and violent that people in the town completely avoided this area. But amazingly, these demon-possessed men know something that others in the town don't know. They know the real identity of Jesus when they see him. And they also know their ultimate fate. Look at verse 29 where they shouted at Jesus, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They knew that Jesus would one day cast them out and destroy them forever. And they begged him that they would be sent into a herd of pigs, as we see in verse 31. He says, If you drive us out, Jesus, send us into a herd of pigs. Now, why they want to go into a herd of pigs is is a bit of a mystery to us but they seem bent on causing destruction. 
Uh, They would prefer to destruct people, cause destruction there. But if they can't get people, pigs will do. Well, it just takes one word from Jesus, one word in verse 32, to deal with these demons. Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd of pigs rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Now, it would be great to stop here and dwell a little bit on why did Jesus kill these 2,000 pigs and, and what, what's the uh, Satan and the devil and kind of really think deeply about those. But uh, that would be interesting. But what is really fascinating here in this uh, miracle with the demons is that they understand the times that they are in, that no one else does there. Have a look again at chapter 8, verse 29. They say, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They know that Jesus has come before the appointed time, before the final judgment day. So verse 29 seems to be this key turning point in in these two big chapters. The hinge, the meat in the middle of the sandwich. The demons understand the times they are in. The demons have knowledge that the end of the world has not yet arrived. Their final judgment has not yet come. So it's like they're saying to Jesus, what are you doing here? You're early. You're not due yet. It's not judgment day. So the question the reader is left thinking is, why, why did Jesus come early? Why did he need to come early before the final judgment day? Uh, I remember coming to Norwest a week early before I was due to start here. For those, I started in January and I had to get some documents signed. And so I had to come here and get someone from church to sign them. And I turned up a week before I was due to officially start. And it was a very strange feeling going somewhere. It's like kind of arriving at a, at a party before it's um, due to start. And you kind of awkwardly stand around, uh, you know, and the hosts are kind of looking at you and wondering what you're doing there so early. Uh, I don't know if you've had that experience, but I had that experience a little bit. And, and people were kind of, you know, very, it's a very friendly church and it was very friendly, but there's a little bit of a sense of, what are you doing here? You're early. You don't start until next week. Well, the demons are having that experience with Jesus, that he is early. So when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, there was a sense that he didn't only come to fix things in that three short years. And we see what he really came to do as we look at the final miracle today the real heart of Matthew's message, the meat in the middle. And it is the story of the healing of the paralytic. This man would have thought that his greatest problem was that he couldn't walk. But Jesus reveals that he has a greater problem than that. And it is the need for forgiveness of sins. Have a look at chapter 9, verses 5 to 8, where Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 5, chapter 9, Verses 5 to 8. He says, Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, go home. Then the man got up, went home, and when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. So we see here Jesus dealing with with the man's greatest problem, the problem of sin. He heals the paralysis, but he deals with his bigger problem, his sin, which is his greatest problem, which actually is the greatest problem for us all here. We need to have our sins forgiven by God to be safe 
on Judgment Day. Now, Jesus could go to Zimbabwe and heal all the people of AIDS. He could even deal with the problem of evil. He could destroy President Mugabe, uh, all of 93 years of age, and he could destroy all the corrupt uh, political regimes of that country. He could even destroy the devil himself. But there would still be a remaining problem, and that would be the sin that lies in every Zimbabwean and all of us. So what is so interesting after the story of Jesus healing the paralytic is that Matthew shares with us his story, the writer. He introduces himself to us and he shares how he came to Christ. He shares his conversion story. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 9. It says, As Jesus went on from there, after healing the paralytic, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And after Matthew becomes a follower of Jesus, Matthew invites Jesus around for a meal with his mates. Uh, And the guests who who he had around, they weren't the who's who of Israel. Uh, They were, as verse 10 says, the tax collectors and the sinners of town. It would have been quite a party. Now, the reality is tax collectors weren't really much like accountants. Um, They were uh, fairly ruthless people. I'm sure accountants can be ruthless. But these tax collectors were very ruthless people in those days. And they stole money, they they bribed people, uh, and they did whatever they could to make money for themselves. Now, when I was in Zimbabwe last year, I, I, I had a real insight. I thought, this is kind of what the tax collectors might have been like in those days. It was uh, the police in Zimbabwe. Now, when we were in Zimbabwe, we got pulled over on the road. Um, we were there for three months, some three months, about 40 or 50 times. Sometimes there would be roadblocks 500 metres apart. You'd stop, and then there'd be another one just up the road. And usually there'd be three police that would come up to you and there'd be another group um, over on the side of the road and it would be very intimidating. They'd come up and they'd greet you and then they would slowly walk around your car looking at everything. And then sometimes they'd ask you to get out of the car and they would want you to show your spare tyre. They'd want you to see your fire extinguisher. They'd want you to see, see your safety triangles in the back. And they were looking for any, any problem they could find so that they could find you for um, money. It was very intimidating. Some people we knew over there would not even drive down to the local shops because they were afraid of getting pulled over by the police, particularly vulnerable people. So many people would offer bribes, which they would happily take. So this is the kind of people that tax collectors were in those days. So here is Jesus sitting down with this type of people and the sinners, which in Zimbabwe terms is probably the, the street lads, the thieves of town. So that is what he's doing. But the religious leaders, the good people of society, as they see Jesus sitting down with these people, having a a meal, they're thinking, don't you know, Jesus, what these people have done to us over the years? They've threatened from us and stole from us for years. They've made our lives miserable. And what does Jesus say to them in verse 12 and 13? He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus could have, 2,000 years ago, completely solved the problem of suffering. He gave us a little snapshot of what he could do. He could have completely solved the problem of evil. And he gave us a little snapshot of that as well. But the reason he came 2,000 years ago and has not yet returned for Judgment Day is that he's still calling sinners. He's still offering the forgiveness of sins as he did 
to the paralytic as he did to Matthew, as he did to the tax collectors, as he did to the sinners. He is offering this forgiveness of sins to people. He is dealing with the greater problem, and that is the problem of our sin. So as we finish this morning, looking at Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, it's important that we understand the times that we're in. What, what times are we in? This stage of history, the far greater need than healing the suffering, although that is so great, and healing, solving the destruction of evil, although that is so great, the world's greatest need is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. It is the forgiveness of sins for us and for everyone. And it was Jesus' greatest priority. God's slogan, if he was to give one for this time period of history, is it's time for sins to be forgiven. It's time for sins to be forgiven. Uh, English preacher wrote, uh, uh, William Taylor wrote a whole little book on chapters 8 and 9. That's how, that's how much he had to say about these chapters and we're covering it in 20 odd minutes this morning. In it, and I borrowed the title from him for this talk, Understanding the Times, because I couldn't improve on, on that title for his book. And in it, he said this. He said, Picture a packed football stadium or a crowded or a busy street in a great humming metropolis. Over and over again, we could settle our gaze on one individual after another and pose the question, what is this individual's greatest need for all eternity? And no matter how often you shift your gaze from one person to another, the answer will always be the same, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus will soon deal with suffering and evil. But the times we're in now, our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. And we know that Jesus came to offer that and to deal with that when he died for us on the cross and took the punishment for our sins. So can I encourage you all this week, as you walk into your offices at work, you look around at the people, think their greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. As you drive into your street in your neighbourhood and you, you look at your neighbours, they're great to think their greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. Or if you were to walk into the school gates, look around at the faces and think their greatest need is to have their sins forgiven. Even if you walk into your children's bedroom, to think their greatest need is to have their sins forgiven. And to take that a step further, can I encourage you as you look at people in this way to say, God, can you tell me can't use me to tell these people how to have their sins forgiven. Use me to tell these people that Jesus came into the world to die for their sins. So the reason Jesus came early and has not yet returned is that he wants to give everyone an opportunity to turn to him and have their sins forgiven. And if you have not done that here this morning, can I urge you to do that today? It's time. It's time for sins to be forgiven. Confess your sins and seek Jesus' forgiveness. Christ died for your sins, which is such great news for us all, isn't it? Let's pray that he would do that for us. Father God, we thank you for the snapshot that you gave us of Jesus healing suffering, dealing with the problem of evil. 
We thank you that he has the power to do this, but we thank you that he's given us this time to respond, to, uh, to seek forgiveness. And Lord, we call out to you and seek forgiveness for the way that we have rejected you and turned against you. We pray that we might put our trust in you and have our sins forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.